Welcome back, my lovely listener. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Well, actually, I'm not. I've got fucking diabetes. No, that's not the kind of diabetes you get through sexual contact. It's the other one, the type 2 diabetes. For those of you who haven't listened to Fucking Mental, a spin-off series of the Walk a Mile in My Shoes podcast before, I'm your host, Chris Young, flying solo while I uh, discuss some of the shortfalls in the mental health system in the UK today. In this episode, I'll be telling you all about how being mental gave me diabetes. You're absolutely right. Correlation doesn't mean causation, and it would be utterly reckless for me to claim such a thing. After all, people have been using pseudoscience like this uh, to decide that storks bring babies and the like. My propensity for swearing in these podcasts has divided my audience a little. I gave up. A stock phrase he loves to use. Why is it necessary to constantly use the expletive fuck? It isn't clever or necessary. No wonder he's an ex-social worker. To which another of my listeners responded with, Question. How is using an expletive worse than calling someone an idiot and saying they are not fit to hold the job without any evidence to substantiate the claim other than the use of the word fuck? She certainly has a point. If we ejected every social worker who swore there wouldn't be many left. The final word on this particular matter has to go to the listener who congratulated me on my Lalo Cheesier, which is the act of swearing to relieve pain, stress and frustration. So, given the circumstances, please allow me a little leeway. Okay, where was I? Yes, madness causing diabetes. I know you're thinking this is a bit of a stretch, but stay with me. I've obviously got a horse in this race, and I'm angry at myself as well as some others. This is hard. To be fair, I feel a bit of a dick. If only I'd... Let me take you back in time briefly before I officially started my career as a, as a crazy person. More specifically, before I started taking medications for that craziness. This isn't a podcast about loony meds per se. I'm possibly building up to that in the future. This is more about how I ended up with diabetes. About 30 years ago, when I was in my mid-twenties, I was rather athletic. I played football to a reasonable level. I enjoyed tennis and basketball wherever I could find them. I could run 100 metres in just over 11 seconds, 200 metres in just under 23, and 10k in just under 40 minutes. It was around this time that I started my paid career as a social worker. Turns out, just being a crazy person doesn't pay that well. During my first month as a social worker in a hospital where I had a manager who uh, didn't, where I'd gone from having 12 clients as a student to having 75 and rapidly counting cases, where my manager maintained it was my management of my caseload and not his mismanagement of the team that had led to this pickle, my mental health began to surface, my mental ill health began to surface with a vengeance. I described all the symptoms of classic dissociation to my GP. I was walking into things, out of regular absences where I'd mysteriously disappear and reappear in different places with no real real knowledge of how I'd got there. Ignoring the fact that this was dissociation, he, he rightfully identified that these episodes were due to stress. He wrongfully, in my opinion, put me straight on to beta blockers without considering any talking therapies or other things going on in my life for that matter. I was in crisis. This was the job I'd wanted to do all my life, and I couldn't do it. 
He told me that the beta blockers would break the mind-body cycle of stress, where my mind would say, I'm stressed, and the drug prevented my body from reacting in a stressed way. My heart didn't, couldn't beat any faster. Great. Well, uh, <clears throat> actually, having a stressed mind and a relaxed body is pretty weird. Add to this, I was no longer the athletic superstar I'd come to know and love. The pills essentially stopped my ability to perform in its tracks. See what I did there? Beta blockers are great if you're a snooker player battling for your next 147, but if you want to go tanking off round a track, not so much. Fast forward 20 years and I was fucking mental. I'd been on most loony pills known to humankind and none of them, and yes, I know this is a very personal thing and I know different folk have different experiences with medications, none of them fulfilled the promise made by my, made by my GP that they'd correct the fictional chemical imbalance in my brain. You may want to read around this subject yourself, but from what I've read, there is nothing out there to substantiate the chemical imbalance theory of mental ill health. Certainly not in my case. I'm more than happy for you to prove me wrong. Contact me in all the usual ways. The psychiatric pills I've endured all over my life have been nothing more than painkillers. Don't get me wrong, at times they've been very effective, very welcome and often life-saving painkillers, but painkillers nonetheless. During this time, I'd been involuntarily, voluntarily admitted to hospital and had been given a few short-term talking interventions from grief counselling to cognitive behavioural therapy, but no, you know, therapy therapy. Around 2007, I was jettisoned, disabled out of the job I'd always wanted, but was unable to perform because of my craziness, which by this time was given the label borderline personality disorder. At this time, and currently as far as I understand, there were no drugs for that condition. So mental health professionals often do what they can to try different meds or to juggle some together in the hope that they will have the right side effects to alleviate some of the symptoms, which in my case were self-harming, invasive thoughts about self-harming, suicidal ideation, emotions that were difficult to manage, insomnia, where I'd stay awake for anything up to six days, but mainly dissociation. I'd vanished from the world for roughly a third of my life. My psychiatrist and I landed on Siroquel, quetiapine, an antipsychotic that would, if nothing else, help me to sleep. I was so unwell and desperate at the time, I'd have happily dressed up in a chicken suit and wandered up and down the high street if I'd felt that that would have helped. I was very vulnerable to taking fucking anything that would help stop the shenanigans in my head. I was uh, less than diligent when checking the information leaflet that accompanied the drugs, although I'm fairly sure the blurb wouldn't have told me about the class action that was being taken out against AstraZeneca because of the inadequate warnings that folk taking the medication had 3.34 times as many cases of type 2 diabetes than those on older antipsychiatric antipsychotic drugs. Would I have taken quetiapine in the knowledge that I was more than three times more likely to develop type 2 diabetes than folk taking similar pills? It really is hard to say. I was crazy and desperate, but something close to an informed choice would have been nice. What responsibility did my prescribing psychiatrist have to tell me about the potential side effects? Or as a friend recently told me, these aren't side effects, they're effects. 
should she have told me something more than, don't take these with alcohol or grapefruit juice? Why didn't she tell me about the long-term effects such as obesity and my newfound friend diabetes? Did she know about the class action that were being taken out against AstraZeneca in the United States, who've paid out over half a billion dollars in damages so far? If not, why not? I've taken a shed load of anti-mental pills over the years, and not once has the prescribing cl clinician discussed anything other than the desired effects of the pills with me. Not once. Somewhat ironically and horribly prophetically, my GP in Scotland told me I'd be taking these meds for life, just like diabetics need insulin. I need pill X to manage the chemical imbalance in my brain. Once I went back to him to explain that the huge dose of venlafaxine, an antidepressant which it turns out also has links to, links to diabetes, I explained that sexually it would take, take me a long time to uh, come to fruition and that it actually hurt when I got there. Even though this is one of the most common effects of the drug, he told me he'd never heard of it. That said, he's very Christian, so maybe his flock uh, patients were reluctant to talk to him about anything quite so, uh, so, so squirty. Doctors, you have a responsibility to talk to your patients about the potential effects of taking any psychiatric medication. Yes, I know you're concerned they might just say, fuck off, I wouldn't touch that with your barge pole. But don't you see, even if they go against your opinion, they'd be making an informed choice. Where was I? Ah, yes. Diabetes. As a social worker in a hospital, I'd come up very close and personal with folk in the later stages of diabetes, where they'd lost much of their sight and one, maybe two of their limbs, had strokes and heart attacks. Unabated, it's a nasty fucker. However, when I was given the diagnosis, I really didn't mind. I'm, I'm sure I will once the denial is over. I'd been expecting it, even though over the last year I've been working extremely hard in therapy not to get to this point. And this is what really fucks me off. Because of the fabulous therapy I've been fortunate enough to receive by a charitable organisation, not the NHS, for free, and that's, not, that's only because I've been lucky enough to be the survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Yeah, I know. I've now been symptom-free, let's call it remission, for over four months. And over the last six months, I've gradually come off the pills which were clearly doing me more harm than good. I'm still on the NHS waiting list after languishing on it for over two years, with no end in sight. Without this therapy, I'd still be necking quetiapine with gay abandon. Okay, abandoned. Replying to anyone who commented on my weight, I'd rather be fat than mad, when, in actual fact, I knew I was both. I had no idea one-to-one -one therapy could ever have got me to this point. I'll go into this more in a later podcast, but I was utterly resigned to my fate of dissociating a third of the time, taking massive doses of medication that meant I was spaced out for much of the day, thankful that I was managing to get a night's sleep. I now have at least four hours in my day that I'd forgotten even existed. Although I'm delighted at the progress I've been making, I'm furious I didn't get the support years ago. 
Everyone's craziness is as complex as it is personal, and I appreciate therapy may not help everyone, but for me, I'm just so angry I didn't get this help earlier. Help that I'm sure would have allowed me years of living a more fulfilling life. And I'm certain I'm only one of thousands in this predicament. People with long-term mental health problems, mental maladies, mental illnesses, whatever you want to call them, are dying between 10 and 20 years earlier than everyone else because of physical illnesses that go unchecked. I'll say that again. It's as shocking as it is devastating. People with long-term mental health problems, mental maladies and mental illnesses are dying between 10 and 20 years earlier than everyone else, often because of physical illnesses that go unchecked. My GP in Scotland didn't monitor my physical uh, health while I was at while I was on the meds, any meds that were con con contributing to my physical decline. I'm lucky that my local GP practice were keen to take blood tests and monitor my heart once a year while I was on quetiapine. Without that, I'd never have known I was diabetic. I have no other symptoms. Oh yeah, I'm fat, but around 75% of folk who are overweight don't ever get diabetes. People with long-term mental health problems are dying early for so many reasons. I've put links into the blurb, but just type long-term, mental, premature and death into Google and you'll get a cascade of shocking statistics. We're dying earlier from the effects of prescribed drugs. In my case, that would be massive weight gain, about 8 stone over 14 years. My drugs made me more hungry and more lethargic at the same time, whilst tinkering detrimentally with my blood sugars. Left unchecked, God knows what would have happened. I know many folk just think, get out there and walk, get off the sofa, you fat biffer. But have a think. There are 3,500 calories in a pound of body fat. That's 49,000 in a stone. In my life, up to, up to the age of 56, I've become nine stone overweight. That's 441,000 calories. However, if you divide that up over my lifetime, that works out to an extra 21 calories a day. That's slightly less than you'd find in an average carrot or in two stalks of celery. The regular looks of disgust I get, accompanied by the behind hands whispers and giggles, are as a result of less than an extra carrot a day. So have a long, hard think before you go into that greedy, lazy rhetoric. Even with people who do eat enthusiastically, take a breath before you ridicule, mock and despise them. I once had a friend who had a, a lifetime of neglect and sexual abuse who told me about the enjoyment she got from food. At least food doesn't judge you, she'd said. What kind of world must she have existed in for food to become her best friend? At least food doesn't judge you. I know you judge me. But to help your prejudice get back into check, imagine first the impact that your sneering has on my agoraphobia. Just get out and walk. Why don't you strap a nine stone person to your back and go out walking? Let's see how far you get. Even without the toxic, toxic concoction of prescribed medication, putting on weight has a cumulative effect. The more weight you gain, the more difficult it is to play football, go out for a run or even for a walk. It comes with back and joint pain and shortness of breath. So before you even start to judge me or people like me, walk a mile in my shoes. 
hey, that would be a great name for a podcast. We're dying earlier from heart disease, respiratory conditions and cancer, as well as strokes and heart attacks brought on by some of the complications of diabetes. This isn't just a physical thing either. Imagine when prejudice gets into the, in the way of a doctor or other clinician's ability to treat folk who are obese or have long-term mental health problems, or both, as humans. I've heard of countless situations where people with mental health problems have been turned away when they've asked for help with their physical health, because whichever healthcare professional has decided to put their mental health front and centre, often assuming they're attention-seeking, exaggerating or just faking it. How many lives has this institutional discrimination cost? Who knows? The real problem is, who fucking cares? Again, I've been really lucky. My treatment has been swift. As soon as my blood tests were confirmed, I saw a diabetes nurse who advised me what my next steps were. She took my blood pressure and talked me through all the results. We need to take prompt action. After all, diabetes is a life-threatening disease. Unlike my mental malady, which, even though both me and my GP spelled out just how life-threatening it was, has led to no treatment over two years. We explored what my options might be and agreed to review my situation in three months. The contrast is really startling. As I was leaving, Karen, the diabetes nurse, said the words that nobody with a label of borderline personality disorder has ever heard. Call us anytime. It doesn't matter how trivial you think your concerns might be, just call us. I haven't, but knowing I can has been incredibly reassuring for me. Thanks to that consultation and the book they suggested I read, Life Without Diabetes by Professor Roy Taylor, links as ever in the blurb, and thanks to my therapy where my agoraphobia has abated to allow me to walk outside, and thanks to my new post-pill energy combined with a, a reduction in my appetite to devour all things fat and sweet, I'm able to follow the guidelines. I'm now walking four miles a day and following an 800 calorie a day diet with the aim of losing 15 kilograms as quickly as possible, which, Professor Taylor's research says, has a high chance of putting my diabetes into remission. I don't think the diabetes nurse, nurses are accustomed to speaking to folk like me who see that compared to a lifetime of mental ill health, diabetes will be a walk in the park. I'm just incredibly lucky that all these things came together at the same time. Who knows how I'd have felt if I'd remained untreated without this excellent therapy. It's highly likely I would have thought, fuck, here's just one more thing and resign myself to the steady decline. Obviously, you can quote me on my walk in the park comment further down the line as my newfound fitness regime collapses around me. I know this is an incredibly difficult journey for thousands of people who aren't in the same fortunate position as me. So far, I've lost a stone, which means I'm nearly halfway there with my weight loss goal. And weirdly, after being given this awful diagnosis, I have something I haven't had for over 30 years. Hope for my future. Over the next few days, over the next few days, I'll be talking about my diabetes journey on YouTube. I'll be calling myself the mental diabetic for obvious reasons. I'll keep you up to date on that. I'm keen to talk with anyone who's on a remotely similar path. All my details are in the blurb. A problem shared is a problem doubled. They're halved, as they say. Far be it for me to finish on an upbeat note. 
Remember, this podcast is a message to all the clinicians out there who fail to inform their patients, for whatever reason, about the real dangers of psychiatric medications. While therapy is as rare as hen's teeth, if medication is your front line of defence in these remarkably underfunded times, you need to do all you can to ensure the people under your care are as informed as possible. Every single life is precious. Walk a mile.